0: Good morning. Would you please join me in opening up our Bibles to Galatians chapter four this morning? Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to follow along with us in a blue pew Bible, and you can find that on page nine hundred and seventy-four. And if you're here just for the first time this morning, or you maybe just began attending in the last few weeks, um, we as a church began preaching through this book of Galatians, verse by verse, back in January. And then we took a month break for our Easter sermon series, and so now we return to where we left off in Galatians 4. Um, but first, I just want to take stock of a couple of things of, as a church, kind of just bring us off to speed as to where we are and kind of what's needed at the moment. Um, but again, if you've been around a while, you know that the way we talk about our Sunday morning gathering, what, what this is, is that it's not the only aspect of Grace Church by a long shot, but it is the most important aspect of Grace Church. And we try to be very clear with that distinction uh, that Scripture does warn against neglecting to gather in the regular, ordinary rhythm of teaching and fellowship and worship and prayer and taking the Lord's Supper. And the Lord ordains this, again, routine gathering um, as the primary, not only, but primary means of grace to strengthen and awaken faith uh, in the Christian life. And so the uh, gathering of uh, every church ha- kind of is this intersection of, time, of of space and and people. And, and so we at Grace Church are at two services, nine a.m. and eleven a.m. every morning. Um, not as a growth strategy, but in response to the way the Lord has grown us. In that um, on any given week uh, at Grace, there's typically between you know three hundred fifteen and three hundred fifty people at our morning gatherings. Um, and if we did that all in one gathering, we would be uh, jam packed in here and, and really no capacity to continue to grow and so as you see now, we, we do we have some capacity at eleven am similar we'll, we'll have some capacity we want to kind of continue in that trajectory because the Lord continues to draw new people to grace church. Um, but we also emphasize that that the gathering on Sunday is not just what's happening up here on the platform it, it is uh, yes, what we receive in the singing and praying and preaching, uh, but it's also what we give to one another uh, in embodied fellowship, right? That's what we missed most during COVID, that we didn't, couldn't do this together uh, in relationship and in serving one another. And so what I have found, especially post-COVID, and I don't know if we're post-COVID, but at this point in COVID... Um, the, 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 those interactions that are kind of 30 seconds to a few minutes with a bunch of different people that you might not think in the moment that that's doing something in your life, but it very much is. Those kind of meaningful, kind of quick-hitting encouragement, uh, perseverance, embodied presence in the lives of others, and, um, and, and how it kind of looks practically for us each and every week to be a healthy church is that on any given Sunday, we have about 40 to 45 members who are serving in various capacities throughout the church, uh, from hospitality to worship to tech team, and then predominantly well over half of those each week needed in our children's ministry between nursery and kids' worship. And and, and what we, again, try to say often is that if we're going to do that in a way that's healthy, here's our posture. Um, Rather than having some people serve all the time, we want all people to serve some of the time, right? Rather than having some serve all the time, we want all to serve some of the time. And, and, and so if you are attend attending Grace, I'm not talking to you if you're kind of brand new, just kind of checking the church out, but if you kind of committed to that this is your church, this is your faith community, what we want to lay before you is that it is our hope and expectation that you will be on one of those Sunday serving teams, uh, not only because we need that from you, But we believe it's an aspect of our discipleship to exhort one another to serve. You know, Jesus in his teaching of his disciples says that their growth and their maturation is not only rooted in what they get from him, but what they give to one another. Um, So kind of coming in line with that is something you may have also noticed or been aware of. Uh, But the Lord has been gracious to grace church, not only in bringing uh, new families and people to our church, but we're also growing organically. Uh, Last time, Megan and I counted over the span of about a 12-month period from kind of um, uh, last September to this upcoming September, there will be 17 babies born in our fellowship. Uh, And and I think that's right. That might be wrong. Um, And and not to mention just families coming in with nursery-aged kids. And so in our nursery ministry, we want to and be able to expand the rooms and offerings there in order to keep up with... Uh, having that fully offered at both services. So it gets you down to this very practical, just want to be transparent. We, we need about 25 more people uh, to agree to serve within, uh, particularly, that nursery ministry. Um, at the 11 a.m. service, the kind of immediate need is about 10. Uh, 10 more, and and so if you are willing or able to do a model of serve one and attend one, that works well within the nursery ministry. Um, So 10 more needed at the 11 a.m., at the 9 a.m. service, Uh, within short order. We're kind of looking out into the summer. We're going to need about 15 more in time. So I know many of you are already serving in uh, nursery, but um, it is our hope that everyone would be able to join a team with an emphasis on that one. Um, so if you're willing to at least kind of uh, hear more about that or, or sign up, you know, you can mark it on your connection card you have in the pew in front of you, put it in the box in the back, um, and, and just know, kind of, this is not a warning, but just as a heads up, that uh, if you're not currently serving on a team, we probably will be reaching out to you in some capacity this week and asking if you'd be willing to step out into that, and so... Uh, we can continue to see everyone at Grace Church playing a part in the growth that God is doing and continuing here at Grace, not only numerically, but spiritually, and that we all can play a part in contributing to that spiritual formation of one another. All right, back to Galatians, picking it up where we left off back in March. We're in chapter 4, picking it up at verse 8, and we're going to read verse 8 through 20 you can follow along in your bibles or up on the screen. We're going to read the whole passage here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I want to share a brief story of a man named Robert Robinson. Robert's father passed away when he was eight years old. From there, really began to struggle in his life as he grew up into his teenage years. His mom tried a bunch of different things, tried to send him different kind of families and programs uh, to help. But nothing helped until, while staying with some family in London at age 17, Robert, by chance, heard the gospel preached by a guy named George Whitfield, And that put him on this path of searching in his own life. And then three years later, at age 20, Robert put his faith in Jesus Christ. And then he entered into ministry himself, had a growing, fruitful church, He was a pastor of a congregation that grew to over a thousand members. But then, seemingly abruptly, he fell away. He left his church. He left ministry. He seemed to abandon God altogether and continued to wrestle through these struggles that he had been experiencing ever since childhood. No one heard from Robert for years. And then he found himself riding in a stagecoach traveling through England with a woman who was humming a song. What song was she humming? He sang a version of it this morning. Come now, fount. Let me read that last verse. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. As the story goes, this woman turned to the others she was riding with in the stagecoach, asked if they had heard of that song. Robert Robinson said, quote, Ma'am, I am the unhappy man who wrote that song many years ago wrote it for his church on Easter Sunday 1758 and i would give a thousand worlds if i had them if i could feel now as i felt then the man who was who wrote prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love left the god he loved it's not known that i'm aware of whether he ever did return to the lord but it sobers me every time I sing it of just how true those words are. Why do Christians veer off course? What are some of the underlying reasons that professing believers lose their affections for, begin to lose their zeal for the Lord that they once knew? Why are we prone to wander? What do we do about it? We can see it in our own lives. What do we do about it when we can see it in the lives of those we love? I think these are some of the questions Paul is wrestling with as he is writing to this church in Galatia. It is a church he started. It's a church he entrusted to faithful men to lead. And then he heard reports of their turning their back on the gospel as they came under the influence of these false teachers. And so Paul sat down to write this letter. And above all, what we have seen and what we'll continue to see as He yearns to see this church walk in the power, walk in the freedom of what it is to be loved by their heavenly Father. And I think this passage is the part of the letter where we see the most pastoral heart and part of Paul. So here's how we're going to unpack what can be a, kind of a thorny, tricky passage. There's a truth, there's a charge, and there's a hope for those who are prone to wander. There's the truth in you, a charge to you, and a hope for you. Most of our time this morning will be on that first point, the truth in you, and then the second and third points will be more like applications, okay? So just keep that in mind if you're the kind of person who tracks times and sermon, all right? And don't get worked up when you realize we're still in the first point, all right? Uh, Just putting that out there. Uh, But number one, uh, the truth in you. Paul's tone at this point in the letter is not as aggressive as it was at the beginning. He is genuinely hurt and confused. Verse 9, how can you turn your back again? Verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. Verse 15, what happened? Verse 20, he finishes with the phrase, I'm perplexed by you. Based on these reports that he has heard, they are doing the unthinkable. They are treating Trading the freedom they have in Christ in return for the slavery that they had been freed from. And so Paul is tapping into something here, I think we can notice. He is exposing the madness of the tendency we have in our human nature to look backward once the way forward looks hard. What do you do when the way forward looks difficult? You can apply this to anything in your life. You you began a new job, and it started out exciting, but now this new job has gotten difficult. Uh, A new friendship that you have, and and it's great, and it's life-giving, but something happens between you as friends, and continuing the investment in this friendship is all of a sudden not going to be very easy. Uh, we, We know with marriage, we often hear the saying, the honeymoon phase. Once you get married, they say everything is easy and carefree, but maybe a couple months later, a year later, a couple years in, what do you do when marriage gets hard? The tendency we have in those moments is to begin to look back, and we have a distorted view of the past, that we, we, we think we were better off there. The, the old job, it, it was not as challenging as it is this, but, but I was comfortable Life being single was easier than now this life being in a relationship. Why does that temptation exist? Why do we always seem to do that to some degree? What is actually getting distorted in those moments? I don't claim to have all the answers, but I think to some level it comes down to control and fear. That the past is enticing because we think we know what that path was about. Even if it wasn't great had its shortcomings, we at least knew what to expect. And we liked that. The most glaring biblical example is in the book of Exodus, after the Israelites were saved from slavery in Egypt. They were brought into the wilderness on the journey to the promised land. And when things got difficult on that journey, hungry, or they heard about Pharaoh's army pursuing them, or they got to the edge of the promised land and saw the vast armies that were there, they would complain to Moses. Why did you bring us here? It would have been better if we stayed enslaved in Egypt. At least we knew what to expect. At least we had food. And Paul is calling this out in the Galatian church. Uh, Remember, the majority of this church was Gentile, meaning they were non-Jewish, not of Jewish background. They are rather of a pagan background. And so Paul says, you were enslaved to the gods with a little g. It wasn't the real God. You were kept in darkness. And it was by God's grace and through Paul's preaching that the Spirit awakened them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And now, these false teachers that we've seen earlier in the letter, known as the Judaizers, they come in, they begin to rattle them, intimidate them, and tell them they need to convert to Jewish customs and outward signs such as circumcision, and that they're giving into this, Paul is saying they are deserting that saving faith. But pay attention here. Don't miss what Paul does here. He is saying to them, if you give in to these Judaizers, your life will functionally be no different than when it was when you were enslaved to pagan gods. If you try to claim Jesus as your Savior, but also rely on works of the flesh for your salvation, it's a Jesus plus theology. Jesus, yes, but plus something else. Paul's saying you're still enslaved to the world. It's like you're pagan again. It just looks a little different on the surface. Brothers, you were rescued from that. Now you want to go back? With a little religious makeover? Let me try as best I can, paint this with a modern example If as a believer today, you um, would say or kind of you're functionally living that as if your religious activity, even what we would consider good activity, as the reason for your salvation or even part of the reason of your salvation, Paul is saying, you're lost. Do you know that? So you, you could be in a few different Bible studies and committed to them. You could say a prayer before your meals with your family you could give a portion of your income to the church in good causes. You could show up at the gathering consistently. But if your Christian life is this check-the-box list of religious activity where you do it to kind of keep God happy, keep yourself in a good place, maybe it just kind of makes you feel good, you feel more balanced emotionally when you go to church, Paul is saying that is no different. In God's eyes, than the actions of more than one billion Hindus who bow down to their gods. Or the secular humanist in our day who finds inner peace through meditation and volunteering in their community. He's saying you're lost. You're still enslaved. In fact, it's even more dangerous than the Hindu or the humanist because you appear outwardly Christian. But you're inwardly lost. And you can fool yourself You can fool others into thinking you're really saved. I think this is the enemy's most insidious scheme, is to make people think they're Christians because of the religious activity, and yet they are completely lost. I'd have to say that one of the most angst-driven things about being a pastor is not the people who are wrestling with assurance or struggling with weak faith or skepticism or asking hard questions That's actually encouraging to me in some ways. But the most angst-driven part of pastoral ministry is the people who think they are Christians and they're not. Doing the right things outwardly, but with the wrong spirit inwardly. What is the difference between real faith and the appearance of faith? Look again at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Um, If if you're a member at Grace, I I hope in some ways that phrase, that verse jumps off the page. that, That this verse, along with many others in the scripture, is the fuel for our vision at Grace. To make disciples who know Jesus Christ and make him known. The Bible uses the phrase know, or knowing God, as far more than intellectual assent. Far more than just knowing things about him. But rather, knowing God, as it's written in the scripture, is an intimate, it's a relational union with God. I think it's best captured in Jesus' own words during his prayer for his disciples, just before he's arrested and crucified in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That was his final prayer before he was crucified. That when God is not simply this force that you know about, but a father whom you know as a son or a daughter, That is the grounds for the necessary and vital activity that you do for the glory of God. So this is doing the right things outwardly, studying your Bible and praying and gathering and being generous, like those are right things outwardly done with the right spirit inwardly that you know God, that we live now of this wellspring of God's love for us, not a dutiful obligation to kind of keep him in our control or keep him happy. So why do Christians veer off course? Why over time can the affections get dimmed and run dry? One reason is that we either stop living out of the freedom of God's love for us and we start living as if God is one to just keep at bay and not be known by. Or we expose that we truly never did know him in that way at all. Do you know him? serious to know him is to fully repent of relying on anything else anything outside of him for salvation even what you would call good things but it's in christ alone that we find salvation restoration and redemption to know him is to fully trust in jesus life death and resurrection to know him is to live in a relationship with god as an adopted child do you know him One of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is is my own story and my own journey of faith. That, that, That through the means of grace and having faithful parents and growing up at a faithful church, this church, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ at a young age, like many of you have. And I do think I was truly saved. I do think I was fully justified by faith at a young age. It was a small, weak faith, but small, weak faith is still saving faith. But at some point or many points. I stopped or slowed down in operating out of and living out of that faith. And my spiritual growth was stunted. And my faith became more about the outward actions that others were seeing as opposed to an inward affection for the Lord. And I did not pursue Him. And therefore, I did not mature in my knowledge of Him and with Him. And and over time, and particularly in my story when I got to college, My my spiritual life spiraled as the lures of the flesh grew and began to crowd out and overpower weak faith. And the way I describe it is that I was a 20 year old physically in a six year old spiritual body. And God exposed that over a period of time, painful ways, a number of ways, all by His grace to fix my eyes upon him. And what I heard him saying was, know me. Don't settle for knowing about me. Know me. And it changed everything. And outwardly from that moment on, it might not have looked like a drastic change to those around me, but inwardly I knew I would never be the same. I feel like that was the time in my journey that I began living as a son and not as a slave. And so I know him, and I will commit the rest of my life to pleading with people to not settle for knowing about him, but see the Lord's invitation to know him. That is the truth in you that Paul wants to shine a spotlight on. Knowing God is the antidote to abandoning God. And now there's two kind of, we'll take it as applications from that truth, Number two, there's a charge to you. The charge is best seen in verse, chapter, verse 12. Your Bible's still open. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And then through verses 12 through 18, again, it could be a tricky passage to parse out. We won't have time to kind of get deep into it. But Paul is basically saying, imitate me, not because of me, but because I am focused on imitating and pursuing Christ. Uh, he'll say something similar in other letters, I think more clearly, most clearly in his letter to a church in the city of Corinth, where he writes there in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, "'Be imitators of me as I am of Christ.'" Earlier in Galatians, he's already wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So you add this all up, and you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, become as I am, be among me, for I am crucified with Christ, just like I proclaimed to you when I was with you. And then he goes on to say, hey, if you're looking backward... While you're looking backward, look at this, remember this, that time that I first came among you, preaching Christ and him crucified. And it's a little cryptic here, but Paul alludes to a bodily ailment he, was, he had when he first came to Galatia. We're not told clearly what it was. It could have been literally uh, something with his eyes um, or, or a slight ailment related to his sight because in verse 10 he says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if you could. It could be a literal statement. It could be a figurative statement. But point being, Paul showed up to Galatia in rough shape. And you read about some of his accounts. You can understand why. All the beatings he took. All the trials he was under. As he was appointed by God to preach the gospel to people who many times hated it. It's not far-fetched to think that Paul came a little roughed up to Galatia. And the reason why that's a big deal. And the reason why Paul is bringing this up. Saying that you loved me in that Is that you received me in my state despite how much of a trial it was for you? Uh, In pagan cultures, uh, maybe similar today, but hopefully not in the same extent, uh, a physical ailment or a physical deformity was viewed as a curse from the gods. So if an outsider came in with an ailment or a deformity, they would be chased out of town. We don't want that kind of energy here. We don't want that kind of person here. You got to leave. He says, you didn't do that. I came preaching the gospel, and you bore the cost of being persecuted because the Spirit did a work in you. And Paul's like, that was incredible. Paul's like, I still remember that. I'll never forget that. You persevered through trial then, which is why he's so hurt now. Why are you now not clinging to Christ when you did then? You can kind of hear his confusion. You can hear the pain in his voice. What happened. And then Paul zeroes in on, I think, one of, if not the biggest reasons, verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you make much of them. Who's the they in verse 17? It is these false teachers that we've been hearing and speaking of. Paul has been writing about those who have drawn the church away from the gospel back into enslavement with a religious makeover, those who said you need to do certain works to be saved, in this case related to Jewish customs and traditions. And so here is another reason why we still today see Christians veer off course, I think one of not the biggest reasons, why people lose their affections or zeal for the Lord is that they place themselves under the harmful influence and teaching of those who do not love Christ. They place themselves under the harmful influence and or teaching of those who do not love Christ. To put it plainly, they begin to imitate the wrong kind of people. Imitation of self-centered people as opposed to Christ-centered people. It always seems harmless at first. It always tends to start small. But over time, those outside of Christ get an outsized influence in your life, and they begin to draw you away from Christ to something else. Every person I have known who, at one time, was on fire for the Lord and then dropped off, had this as part of the process. And I don't want to downplay the times that the that professing Christians and churches have done to harm and hurt Christians that in some ways push them into the arms of false teachers or people that draw them away from Christ. But at some point, this is part of the process, a distancing from a faith community coinciding with an increased influence with another community or person that did not know God. And it's a trajectory that is often the way Paul lays out. He says, they make much of you. They flatter you. They tell you implicitly or explicitly how much better off you'll be if you distance yourself from the community and the truth that you clung to. And over time, the distance gets further, the questions grow bigger, the doubt is greater, the affections for the Lord is weaker, and the interest in the God that they used to claim. The faith community they used to be a part of becomes untenable at a certain point, and they walk away. So, Paul is saying take a hard look at those influences in your life. They make much of you, but then they will eventually shut you out so that you make much of them. It's a game of cat and mouse where they're giving you what you think you want and pouring into you, they're only in time taking from you and want something from you. And we'll see for the rest of the letter, Paul will expose them again and again, provide evidence to his claim that these teachers are out for themselves, not for the church, not for the glory of God. And the question for us to apply this to our lives are who are the most influential people in your life today? If you were to make a list, these three, four, or five people are the most influential in your life today. Who's on that list? Who do you subconsciously find yourself trying to imitate in your life? Let's be honest, we're all imitators. We all imitate someone or a mashed up version of a few people, but we all have our eyes on those we want to be like and grow into. There's no such thing as a true original. We're all imitators of others. The question is, who's at the top? Do the people you seek to imitate most make you look more like Christ or less? Do they love Christ? We are called to have relationships with all kinds of people, We're, in a sense, called to all people to pursue those that even at times have little in common with us, particularly those in the world who don't have a relationship with God. We're called to cultivate, love, serve them. But who is most influential in your life? Who is forming you today? Which leads to number three, and we'll close with this. We've seen a truth in you. We've seen a a charge to you. And now, finally, Paul's hope for you. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If you're an underliner in your Bible, underline verse 19, because it's, again, part of a tricky passage that I think just often gets lost, but this is a monumental verse for the church today. This is the hope for every Christian in this church, in this country, across this world, that over time, Christ would increasingly be formed in us. He is the mold. We are the clay. And this is why I think it is Paul at his most pastoral, perhaps more than anywhere else in his letters. He goes from addressing them as brothers to this endearing term, my little children. This is the agony of a pastor. Martin Luther says on this first that this is Paul's tears in writing. And again, at Grace Church, this verse has an outsized importance amongst our leadership and our elders. Uh, Every year since I became the senior pastor, we read and study and have a meeting dedicated to prayer for the church based on Galatians 4 19. Out of all the hopes we have for the members of Grace Church, all the things we want to see happen in your life, all the things we want you to strive for, they all fall subject to this primary hope to see Christ formed in the hearts and lives of our members. And for those of you who have committed to this faith community in membership, this is the heartbeat of our membership covenant. That everything in there that we covenant to do for one another flows out of a beating heart, hope to see Christ formed in one another and then contribute to that meaningfully as God has gifted you. Christ formation is a team sport, not individual. You with me? Think basketball, not golf. That's Christ formation in the church. And this is the primary hope that Christian parents ought to have for their kids. I know you have a lot of desires for your parents. I mean, sorry, well, for your parents too. I mean, we got desires for everybody, but your parents, particularly for your kids. It's not wrong to have different desires for them, but we don't primarily want them to study a certain subject. We don't primarily want them to be a certain profession when they grow up. We don't primarily want to steer them to a certain hobby or be with a certain someone in a relationship. We don't want to dictate their paths in life and control everything they do. But rather, we want to, whatever they choose to do, see them formed in Christ. To see Christ formed in them. Whether that's as an athlete or an artist. White collar, blue collar. Four-year college or trade school east coast or west coast our hope and our children is that christ would be formed in them christ is the mold we are the clay and we are to be formed into the shape of christ as we walk along this journey called the christian life it's not an easy life it's not a comfortable life there will be many moments that many of you are standing there right now you're looking at the path ahead you said this looks difficult this looks hard but it will be a life modeled after, empowered by the God of the universe, the God who we know, who we are known by, the God who will reign as king over all things for all time. That God is formed in you. So our hearts are indeed prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But we trust that He will be faithful bonding, binding our wandering hearts to Thee. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word as it is proclaimed in the gathering of Your people. Father, use it to not just inform us, but Lord, by Your Spirit, use it to transform us. And, and Lord, we, we live out of the freedom of the gospel. We live as sons and daughters, not slaves. And, Father, as we face a difficult life ahead of us, Lord, knowing across the room there's an array of trials that we are facing at this moment, right now, I pray, Lord, that we can take the next step forward as you've called us to, not because of our own strength, but because the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, is in us forming in us over time. Father, give us the grace to see it, to feel it, and to stay near to you. And to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.